Hello there, everybody. Uh, yeah, good morning. Thanks for uh, having me today. It's really an honor and a privilege um, to be here getting to talk to you. Uh, my wife was born in Sun Prairie. So that's like just northeast of Madison. And um, we spend a lot of time here. We love the city. And um, we've got, you know, some people even here that, you know, family, friends. And we've just really, really, really love Madison a lot. And so it's an honor and a privilege to be able to preach here and to share God's with, uh, word with you today. Um, the text is going to be Matthew 2, 13 through 23. And so if you'll turn with me now in the uh, Bible in front of you, if, if that's one you're using, it's going to be on page uh, 1,470. So again, uh, Matthew 2, 13 through 23, and it's on page 1,470. So I'm going to read aloud, and you can just go ahead and follow along with me. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the angel, or take the child and his mother, and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I will call my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem in its vicinity, who were two years old and, un and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in dream to Joseph in Egypt he, and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. And when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warmed in, warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what he said, what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. So, the text is Matthew uh, 2, 13 through thir uh, 23, and, and I think it this text is all about God's good plan, right? Um, it's hard to see, and it's, there's a lot to work through um, in all of this, but I think this text is all about God's good plan. Um, Cecily, uh, my wife, was born and raised, like I said, in Sun Prairie, and I was actually born just southwest of Madison uh, in Arizona, just southwest by like 1,700 miles, you know? And um, we dated long distance for like quite some time. Uh, we dated long distance for over three years, and we talked a lot, and we talked, and we talked, and we talked, and like dating long distance is all about talking. Uh, one thing we loved talking about around the holidays was Christmas movies that we really liked, you know? you have like that Christmas movie that you have to watch. Uh, for me, that movie has always been Home Alone. I loved watching Kevin set up like all those like uh, goofy traps for the burglars, Harry and Marv, and you know, basically guiding them through the house and they end up with their, you know, irons getting hit on their head and like getting shot by a BB gun. One of them gets their head lit on fire. They step on nails and ornaments. It's just, it's hilarious to watch. 
but but I mean, if you really think about it, like these burglars, like they're coming in to invade the home and like rob the place. They're like fiercely opposing Kevin. They're really upset at him, right? Kevin has a good plan though. He carries out the plan, even amidst fierce opposition. And you can see here that there's some fierce opposition, right, to God, to God's plan. Now, he's not going to set up booby traps to catch Herod, right? That's not what I'm trying to say. But I mean, what he does is he protects Jesus very carefully, meticulously. He protects Jesus, and he has a very, very good plan in mind. And so I think the main point of this text that I want to get across today is this. I want us to walk away with this in our mind. Know that God can complete the plan of salvation he has begun, even when the opposition is fierce. Like I said, the opposition here is fierce. And in our lives, we see fierce opposition, right? Like, whether it's to Christianity itself and terrorist regimes like um, ISIS or others, or whether it's, you know, maybe like one political side or another we think is right, you know, like, there always seems to be some sort of opposition. There's murders, there's famine, there's plagues. I mean... Humanity seems to have some fierce opposition, right, to flourishing, basically. But we don't have to worry about that because I want us to walk away. I mean, I want us to walk away knowing that God can complete the plan of salvation he has begun, even when the opposition is fierce. Now, before we talk about uh, the text, Matthew 2, 13 through 23, um, I kind of want to talk about how Matthew works as a book. Um, you guys probably already know it, but um, just as a refresher, um, I'm going to talk about uh, Back to the Future. I know it's two movie references in a row, but just, just go bear with me here. Okay, so Back to the Future 2, uh, if you remember, it was just October 21st, 2015. That was the date entered into the DeLorean, right? And so naturally, I just actually watched Back to the Future 2. And in it, Somehow, this guy named Biff, he's sort of the bad guy, he gets a hold of an almanac. And an almanac tells the results of all of the sporting events from 1950 to 2000, right? So Biff gets this almanac, he steals the time machine, and then he goes back into the past where his like young high school self is. And he gives his young high school self in 1955 an almanac containing all of the results for the sporting events from 1950 to 2000. Are you following? Does that make sense? So he gets this book and he's really reluctant at first to use it. Like, yeah, I'm just going to trust some guy who came up randomly giving me a book and claiming that he knows all of the results for like all of the sporting events from 1950 to 2000. Like, no. But as the sporting events go exactly as the almanac says, he starts to gain trust in it. You could even call them prophecies, right? As he starts to see these prophecies being fulfilled, he's like, okay, great. We see why Biff would trust that. He ends up super rich. That's what Matthew does. Matthew uses the Old Testament sort of like an almanac. He says, look at all of these crazy events that are happening in Jesus. Like, these are the results. Like, look at this. The Old Testament says all these things are going to happen. And in Jesus, they are all happening. This is incredible. So he uses the Old Testament just like an almanac. In fact, there are at least three prophecies fulfilled right here in this passage today, in just these 10 verses. So let's turn to the text, Matthew 2, 13 through 23. Um, it's sort of like a play, and it has three acts. And so we're going to go act by act. And each act sort of has a different theme encouraging us to know that God is going to complete the plan of salvation he has begun. So Act 1, verses 13 through 15. 
God knows the plans of those who oppose him. Now, why should this encourage us? Well, imagine like World War II, right? USA and Germany are kind of going at it. And USA somehow gathers information on all of the military plans of Germany. Literally everything. They, like the US knows everything that Germany is going to do. It's not hard to see why that would be an advantage, right? In the same way, God knows the plans of those who oppose him. And we see that right away. Right here's the text. We see that right away, right here. God, speaking through an angel to Joseph, says, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That's Herod's plan. God knows Herod's plan. Very, very crystal clearly, God knows Herod's plan. Now, I think that it's important to know that God isn't afraid of this. God isn't, like, threatened by it, and God isn't worried about it, but he does know it. Herod does have a plan, and God clearly does know it. So, now I want to turn to sort, because it's like an act, or it's like a play, you know, and act one has two main characters, Herod and Joseph, we see. So now I want to turn to Joseph. We see that Joseph took the child and searched for the child, and he took the child again, right? Do you notice that it's not his child? Jesus isn't his child. That strikes me as odd because, right, Joseph is the father of Jesus, but he's not in a very, very important way. In fact, Matthew goes out of his way to say the child, not his child. Well, whose child is he? Well, we see that even. Out of Egypt, what, is, what does God say? I called at the bottom there, my son. So, Jesus is definitely a human child in a lot of ways. But he's also clearly something special and divine. This quote from Hosea 11.1 1 tells us that Jesus is the son of God, but also is identifying Jesus as Israel. And I think that's something super important that Matthew is saying. That's like the big picture narrative. That's the big picture prophecy that uh, Matthew is trying to say. So here's some ways that Hosea 11.1 1 and others show us that Israel is the same as Jesus in some way, that Jesus is being identified with Israel. First, the Hosea quote kind of clues us in that Matthew's trying to say that, right? But if you think about Jesus's early life and Israel's early life, they, they mimic each other, right? Jesus and Israel both were born in the land, right? Then they were brought out of the land and into Egypt for good reasons, and they were both called out of Egypt back into the land, right? Matthew's saying like, guess what? The whole story of Jesus is the story of Israel. Jesus is fulfilling the story of Israel. Jesus is the son of God, the one that's being waited for, the story of Israel's fulfillment. So in a big way, this text is trying to claim that Jesus is Israel. Now, he's the focal point of salvation, right? He's the plan. And what is, what is Herod trying to do to the very plan of salvation that God has set out? It tells us right here. Oh, well, I skipped ahead. I'll go back. So before we rush ahead, let's, uh, let's go back to remembering that Joseph is a good father. I think that's important to note, right? Like, Matthew goes out of his way to mirror up the text exactly. Like he says, that the command is get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. So what did Joseph do? 
He got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt. He did exactly as he was commanded. So let's think about for a moment um, this, like the situation Joseph is in. Uh, Mary, his engaged, uh, is a beautiful woman and he loves her a lot. All of a sudden he finds out she's pregnant. This is a shocker to him. And he's like, well, I'm a good man. I'll divorce her quietly. And angel of the Lord says, no, you won't. You need to marry her. And he says, all right, I guess so. Now all his friends, right? I mean, the community pressure has got to be something like, dude, like she's walking around claiming that this was God. Like you need a reality check. Like, come on, man. <laughs> like, really? Really? You're going to do that? And so he's probably a little torn one way or the other, but he's remaining faithful. And then an angel of the Lord appears again and says, oh, by the way, because of the baby, the king, yeah, crazy King Herod, he's going to try and kill the baby. And he's probably going to try and kill you too, because, you know, like that's just how King Herod worked. He killed all of the opposition. And so you got to leave all your friends and your family and everything you know, and you got to go to Egypt. And what does he do? He gets up, takes the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt. Like, Joseph is a faithful dude. He's a good, good demonstration, demonstration of being faithful. All right, so now we can get back to what I was saying earlier when I jumped ahead. Um, what did Herod do to the very plan of salvation? of Jesus, right? I kind of already alluded to it accidentally, but he tries to kill him, right? Um, the word here that's translated kill is actually typically translated destroy, right? And so it's this word here, apalumai. It's typically translated destroy, and that's the word that's used for kill. Further on in the passage, the word anoreo is used, right? And that's typically translated to kill. He uses two different words. Why, why does he use two different words? He's saying that Herod is not just trying to kill Jesus. Herod is trying to kill Jesus because he's a threat to his reign. But in the very process of trying to kill Jesus, Herod is actually trying to destroy the entire like, plan of salvation from the fulfillment, like from the very beginning of the promise, right? All the way through the story of Israel, God has had this plan and its fulfillment is in Jesus and he's trying to destroy Jesus. There's a lot of power behind this. Now, obviously Herod is a bad dude, right? Like, I don't know if you know this, but Herod's like a really, really bad dude. He does not hesitate to kill his own family members. He doesn't hesitate to kill, kill his closest friends, the most powerful officials, just because he thinks that they might like try and plot against him. Like he goes around, he's probably one of the worst um, people that you want to be ruling over. In fact, Augustus, Caesar Augustus says, it's better to be Herod's, uh, Herod's pig than son. Like just to give you an idea, it's better to be his pig than his son. So it shouldn't surprise us, obviously, that uh, Herod is trying to, to kill him, right? Um, but as we know, Herod knows, or God knows the plans of Herod. God knows the plans of Herod. Even though he's a crazy king, and he, even though he's got all the power that he possibly can have in the region, God knows. And he's like, no big deal. Like, I'm going to get my son. I'm going to meticulously and carefully craft a plan to protect him. You don't have to worry. 
And so when we're faced with opposition, when we're faced with opposition, right, we can react in one of two ways. And I think Herod and Joseph set up this um, sort of two different reactions we can think of, right? Herod has opposition because someone is trying to like mess with his reign. That's the opposition Herod is facing, right? Someone is in, like, someone is threatening my power. And basically just flails his arms all around. He's, like, totally in fear. He's super prideful and arrogant, and he has has no control over anything he's doing. But he's just reacting, like, out of fear. He's terrified. He's completely terrified that he's going to lose power. That's why he killed, like, all those people, like, in his family, too. Like, he was just scared. He's a very fear fearful person. We can react like that to the opposition. And sometimes, you know what? We do. Like, I'm, I'm fearful sometimes of the crazy stuff that's happening in this world. I'm not going to lie. We can also react like Joseph, right? Joseph is a shining example of what reacting in faith is. God, I don't know, I don't know what's going on. I don't. I don't know why you're asking me to marry this woman, like, even though, you know, something I think happened that tells me I shouldn't. I don't know why, but I trust you and I love you. All right. So that's Act 1. Act 2, verses 16 through 18. We do a cut scene over to Herod's actions now. We're not following the Holy Family. God's plans are not ruined when his opponent's plans are carried out. Think back to the, you know, the illustration of World War II and USA and Germany. So let's say the USA or the U.S. knows the plans of Germany, okay? It'd be one thing if they knew the plans of Germany and, was, and they were like, holy cow, this is terrifying. They're going to end the world. We have no hope. But it would be a total another thing if they found out the plans of Germany and they're just kind of like, ha yeah, that's, that's cute. Good try. You know what I mean? Like, they, there would be one thing if they were terrified and it would be one thing if it went, didn't phase them at all. In the same way, God's plans, like, he's not phased. Even when his opponent's plans are carried out, and we see that they are, in a pretty horrendous way, right? Herod gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were, in, who were two years and older, or two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. So, we, real, we realize something, that Herod is able to carry out this really evil plan, right? Now, when I first read this, and when I first heard this story, like, I kind of stopped. Like, wait, What? Why? Why would, why would God allow this? Why is this in the Bible? Like, what the heck is going on? And I think that's a good question to ask, but I don't think that's the question, actually, that this text answers. The, the text itself answers how to react to pain and suffering, not why it happens. The Bible does answer, and it does offer insights into evil, pain, and suffering, and things like that. But right here, the weeping and the great mourning, the weeping and the refusing to be comforted is answered. This text is from Jeremiah 31, 15. So if we go to Jeremiah 31, 15, and then continue reading, we read this, Jeremiah 31, 16 through 17. This is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy, so there's hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. Now, in context, the Assyrians have taken some of the Israelites away in 722 BC, right? And basically, God is comforting them 
God isn't saying why it's happened. God is offering comfort. In the same way, God is going to offer comfort to these people. I mean, these parents, right? These parents of, like, the, the children who have been slaughtered, like, they probably don't want a philosophy 101 answer for the problem of evil, right? Like, they don't want some cold theological statement saying, like, this is why evil happens. This is, like, the biblical grounds for the problem. Like, no, like, like be with them. Offer them comfort, right? Offer them empathy. Care for them. Think about the story of Job. Job loses all he has. He loses nearly all his family. Um, he's covered in painful boils. His wife walks up to him and says, curse God and die, and then walks away, and he's seen in a pile of dust. Now, his friends walk up to him, and they do one thing right. Do you remember what they do at the beginning? They just sit down with him, and they mourn with him. In fact, all the trouble starts when they start answering the question, why? Well, you must have, you know, you're lying to us about your sinful nature. No. Well, you're, you must have unknown sin. No. Like this, that, and the other. Like all these different answers. And it only is hurtful. It only does harm. So as a church, what we need to do when people are in pain and sorrow, we don't need to like offer them answers. We don't, we need to offer them comfort. When suffering and evil happens in this world, I mean, think of all of the different things that are happening right now that we could offer comfort to. In, in the city, in our own lives, in our own communities, at work, globally, right? Think about all these refugees everywhere. Like, they don't, they, they don't want to hear, like, the six reasons why pain and suffering happens, right? That's not what they, just comfort and love and empathy. That's what God is saying. However, if you do want some insights, some philosophical, theological insights, um, there's just not enough time to give them here. There just isn't. However, D.A. Carson, Dr. D.A. Carson, he's uh, the gener general editor of the new Zondervan Study Bible. He teaches at TEDS. He's way smarter than I'll ever be. He gives this lecture. Um, if you want to write it down and look it up and watch it, I'd highly recommend it. He gives six insights from the Bible. Not answers, but insights. So I'm not just skirting around the problem. I'm just saying that this text doesn't address it that way. This text says, offer comfort and sympathy and empathy to those people. So, in sum, Act 2 is all about Herod's plans being carried out. Except it doesn't affect God. It doesn't affect God's plan. Even more so, God sees that, and he sees that the evil and suffering has been carried out. Herod's plan has been carried out, and it has basically caused evil and suffering. And God reacts to that in compassion. If we read further on in Jeremiah 31, where that quote is from, some of you probably are clued into this already, but Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, those verses 31 through 34 is all about this new covenant, right? So there's this great weeping, and then God comforts them and says, don't worry about it. And then he says, and I'm going to give you a new covenant. Matthew is saying that, like, even though, like, this happened, God's plan of salvation is going to continue. In the first act, we see that God is Jesus, or that Jesus is the plan of salvation that God has had from the beginning. And in this act, God is showing us that, or Matthew is showing us rather, that Jesus is bringing about the new covenant, that God comforts those who have suffered because of the evil people's actions. He's not saying it's not going to happen. He's saying that he's going to comfort them and that he's offering a new covenant in Christ. That's act two.
Act 3, verses 19 through 23. God will carry out his good plans. So, going back to the illustration about World War II, right? The USA and Germany, right? USA figures out all the plans of Germany. Great. USA is not intimidated at all about Germany's plans. Great. And then they close their borders and just do nothing. Well, that's no hope, right? That's totally useless, actually. No, like, think about it if, think about if they figured out the plans, they weren't scared of the plans, and then they just went in and dominated them. Like, that's exactly what God does, right? God isn't afraid of Herod's plans. He knows the plans, and then he carries out his own meticulously crafted and carefully planned plan. He carries out his good plans. He does. We see that. And so, like I said, verses 12 through 15, I'm sorry, verses 13 through 15 are all about um, the Holy Family, and then Matthew kind of does a cut scene to the story of Herod and like that really just brutal act. But now Matthew actually cuts back to the scene of the Holy Family. So we get like sort of like the Herod's actions over here and the narrative in two parts over here. So, Act 3 starts up in verse 19, and we're reminded that this is after Herod had died. If you look at verse 15, Herod had just died, then all the actions with Herod happened, and then we cut to verse 19, right? So, it's important to know that Herod died, right? Well, yeah. I'm, I actually, you know, like, did a little research, and Josephus writes that he didn't die like a nice death. For one, all of his murderous plots and, like, killing of his family, you can imagine, like, has not created a very good family life. And so he's lonely, he's scared, and he's very bitter and fearful. But then he gets this disease that burns him from the inside out. He has to keep scratching himself. He smells so bad that no one wants to be around him. And that's how he dies. I mean... By the grace of God, he could be forgiven, right? But when he sees Jesus, he reacts quite ferociously. And justice, in a way, is served, I think. Herod dies, right? And then we continue to read on that an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph. And we see something similar to what we saw earlier in verses in the first act, right? Very, very faithful. Get up, take the child and his mother, and Joseph does it again. He does exactly what is said, and I'm not going to belabor that point. I'm just going to simply say, again, Joseph is being shown as a faithful father figure to Jesus, even though he's not his true father. Then we read this phrase here. Those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. Now, this phrase is interesting because it's almost verbatim of Exodus 4.19 when Moses is called back from exile, right? Moses does some really bad stuff in Egypt. He goes in exile, and then he's called back. He's called back this way. Go back to Egypt, for those who wanted to kill you are dead. Matthew is connecting Jesus with Moses now. Matthew does this actually in a number of ways. Think to Moses' early life. How is Moses' infancy, how does it happen? Pharaoh tries to kill all of the boys, right? Moses is the sole survivor who's protected by God. You know, he floats down a river, Princess Caesar. Herod goes crazy and tries to kill all the boys. Jesus is the sole survivor. Matthew does this in a number of ways, but he shows that Jesus is actually superior to Moses. Even though he's identified as Moses, he's superior. Moses receives the law on top of a mountain, but Jesus gives the law 
on top of a mountain in the Sermon on the Mount, right? And on and on the list goes. Jesus is the superior Moses. And so what is the law? What's a law in the U.S.? Like, don't steal something. That reflects what we believe as a nation we think people should do, right? The law is what we think people should do. It's the will. The will of the nation is their law. The law is the will. So the law of God is the very will of God. And if you're identifying Jesus as the law, you're identifying Jesus as the very will of God. So in the first act, we see that Jesus is God's son, not only God's son, but he's the very fulfillment of the entire story of Israel. In act two, we see that God is using Jesus to bring about this new covenant in a powerful, incredible way. And in act three, we see that Jesus is the very will of God. Like, it's no wonder, right, that he carefully and meticulously protects him in the smaller narrative. That's the big plan, right? But in the small narrative, we see this, this holy family, this family just moving very carefully through very, very dangerous territory, God protecting them all the way. The Magi show up, right, when Jesus is born, and they give him go- gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, I may be reading into it, but those seem like pretty valuable items, Right? And maybe they funded their flee to Egypt. God provided funds, basically, you know? He carefully said, like, when to come back, what to do, like, exactly verbatim. Now, oh, excuse me. And now I, I do want to show, like, it continues, right? Archelaus was reigning in Judea in the place of his father Herod, crazy King Herod. Archelaus grew up under Herod in that crazy family. It's no wonder then that this guy is super evil too. And Joseph says, um, I'm afraid. I don't want to go there, <laughs> you know? And uh, so what does he do? Well, we see th- uh, four places, Israel, Judea, Galilee, and Nazareth. So Israel is like a big region, right? And Judea is kind of down here. And then Galilee is kind of up here to the north. So Joseph comes into Judea and he's like, oh, God, Archelaus is reigning. Please not here. And then he continues on and he goes into Galilee and he ends up settling in a little town called Nazareth. And so we learn in Luke also that they were pro- Joseph and Mary were probably from Nazareth. So it shouldn't be surprising that settled there. But what we see is a fulfillment of the whole story, right? There's this fierce opposition and God carefully plans out Jesus' whole adventure and lands him right in a spot in a small town, Nazareth, that is picked out, I think. I mean, it's a small town in the middle of nowhere, a great place, right, to hide from a crazy king who might want to kill you. Like, and it's far away. It's to the north of him. It's not in Judea. And finally, we get one more fulfillment, right? If, If it hasn't been enough already. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. We're not exactly sure where this comes from, actually. Um, scholars, you know, debated, et cetera. But I think the best answer is Isaiah 11.1. 1. Um, it's about Jesse and the sprout coming out from the root of Jesse. And, the, you know, the Holy Spirit will be upon him and he'll bear fruit. And it was actually written a long time after Jesse and David lived. But it was written a long time before Jesus was lived. And so a lot of people just say, like, this is actually saying that Jesus is the Messiah. 
And from what we've already seen before in just these 10 verses, it wouldn't be really surprising if Matthew is saying, hey, look, Jesus is the Messiah. So I think that's the best, uh, the best way to interpret this, uh, this uh, last sentence. And so in Act 3, we see the plan of God being carried out, right? He has a good plan. Now, I, I want to just say right now that God has a good plan for you, right? I mean, obviously, we're not, we're not synonymous with Jesus, no. But when you start following Jesus, what happens is you become a child of God, right? A child of God. God, God meticulously and carefully crafted a plan to take care of his child. And when you start following Christ, you become a child of God. He has a meticulously crafted plan for your life. And even if you're not following Christ, he already has a plan for you. And if you start to follow him, your life will reflect that plan. And let me tell you, when I, when I became a Christian, I felt, I felt this plan start to take action. I felt welcomed in, into a community that that cared for me deeply, that looked after me and loved me, that wanted the best for me. I mean, and that's just the community. I learned so much by reading the Bible about ethics and about the way that God is and the way that God loves me. I just, fear just dissipated. Pride, I mean, I don't, <laughs> I'm not perfect. <laughs> you can ask Cecily. <laughs> but I'll tell you, like, it's an incredible feeling. And so if you're not a follower of Christ right now, like feel free to ask someone, like fill out that connection card and bring it to the back or ask someone that you know, like, like pursue it. It's, it's really an incredible thing. At least give it a shot. But if you are, if you are a follower of Christ, like take, like be encouraged, right? God has an awesome plan for you. In fact, his plan is the most fulfilling life you could possibly live if you follow after him. So I don't want, you know, to just leave it at that. You know, I want to look back at, um, at the main things that we kind of looked at today, all right? So this is the main point, right? Know that God can complete the plan of salvation he has begun even when the opposition is fierce. We see that in the broad, you know, stroke picture with all these prophecies being fulfilled and Jesus being shown as the son of Israel, the fulfillment of, you know, the story of Israel, the one who brings the new covenant and the very will of God. That's God's big plan and it's going to be fulfilled even in the face of fierce opposition. But we also see in the smaller narrative, right, this carefully crafted meticulous plan for the individual person of Jesus, Joseph protects baby Jesus from Herod because he's faithful and he listens to God. Like there's a carefully crafted plan. And so even amidst fierce opposition that happens, God knows the plans of those who impose him. So we should be encouraged to believe this, right? If God knows the plans of those who oppose him and his plans aren't ruined when his opponent's plans are carried out and he has a good plan, like we can believe that God can complete the plan of salvation he has begun, even when the opposition is fierce. All right, let's pray. God, you are the creator of all things. You hold all things in balance, and you're the, you're the only person that allows us to live each day and wake up even. It's by your grace that we awake every day. Lord, forgive us for opposing you. And allow us to uh, just mimic our lives after the life of Christ. 
We praise your name, that you have a good plan of salvation that you will carry out even when the opposition is fierce. And we just thank you so much for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross and carefully protecting him. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.